0: This week, Anne and Lewis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest Nathan Bryson, Ph.D., chief scientific officer of Reunion Neuroscience. Nathan joins us this week to discuss how he made his way to Reunion, the company's unique serotonergic psychedelic compound that's situated between psilocybin and DMT and designed to treat postpartum depression, the goals of the neuroscience company, and what he finds most intriguing about the discovery, creation, and pathway to bringing novel compounds to market. If you are interested in learning more about Reunion or following the company's research and development progress, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Nathan and Reunion on LinkedIn and Twitter. So, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Nathan Bryson of Reunion Neuroscience.
1: Um, so, Nathan... It is uh, it is a pleasure to have you here on The Green Rush. Um, you know, Anne and I and Nick and everybody who has hosted or co-hosted this have talked to hundreds and hundreds of people in the cannabis space and in the psychedelic space. You're relatively unique in that you are um, a scientist and a chemist who actually is making the drugs that... Uh, that we are all hoping can help cure many of the CNS disorders that people are dealing with. Um, and your, 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 uh, your role at Reunion um, is pretty interesting. This isn't your first rodeo um, in drug development. What is it about working with novel compounds generally that attracts you?
2: Well, hello, all of you, and glad to be here. Appreciate being uh, on the show.
1: Um,
2: you know, I, I, I've, as a chemist, I can sort of see molecules in my head. If you, if you, I try to tell people, think back to Tinker Toys. I don't know if anybody even remembers those—the sticks and the and the wheels with the holes in them. In, in my head, I sort of imagine things three D in that way. Um, maybe like a mechanic imagines a car for Formula One, right? I. And so that kind of whole conceptual business makes sense to me. And I can fit it in with not just chemistry, but um, formulation, indication, and company within a corporate strategy. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't consider myself much of a chemist anymore these days, because um, I probably spend 20% of my time asking chemists to build molecules for me that I design. And then step back and figure out how to place them within a framework of a corporate structure that's trying to develop a molecule. And so it's sort of that what I like about this and what attracts me, especially even into reunion was that ability to come in at an early stage and build um, Really build a program around a molecule with a concept in mind that we want you know, something that's patentable, that can go a long ways that can get to, you know, a pharma partner, but also have differentiation as differentiatable aspects of it that might make it more interesting to everybody else. So it's not just the chemistry that incites me. It's, it's sort of the whole project building where I've done this, you know, as you said, not in my first rodeo, done it three or four times in three or four different companies. I built a sublingual apomorphine that's now on the market in the U S uh, I got a nasal testosterone approved in in the U.S. and Canada, so you know it's it's always it's it's a combination of things, uh, creation, novel molecules, trying to solve problems. Uh,
3: you know, Nathan, before we kind of dig further, can you just give our listeners the 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 thirty thousand foot overview of of what is Reunion and what are you guys trying to accomplish?
2: Yeah, um, so Reunion is. A company that was, um, I'm going to say, started in the shadow of Field Trip Health about three years ago. Um, uh, I was I was brought in as chief science officer to to start up the whole concept and the project, uh, and we named ourselves Field Trip Discovery. Um, and within that framework, um, we came to decide on and initiate development, and even initiate. Um, clinical trial, uh, phase one clinical trial, with a concept um, we call Um, RE-104. RE-104 was uh, conceived of as a shorter acting psychedelic when you compare it to something like psilocybin and LSD and uh, MDMA. And but it's a little bit longer than the DMTs and 5-methoxy DMTs of this world. It sort of sits—I um, call it like in that Goldilocks space, uh, in between. Where I, what we wanted was to build something that was like psilocybin. This was an early day, This is three years ago when we started, and so in my head, it was still early days. We wanted something that looked like psilocybin and acted like psilocybin, but was shorter than psilocybin. So it needed to keep that sort of psilocybin framework. Um, and not be as fast acting and crazy, you know, knock your socks off kind of thing like with a 5-methoxy DMT, um, which everybody's actually trying to slow down by doing multiple doses at sub-therapeutic doses or or using an IV infusion to try to spread out the peak because it's just too doggone fast. And we figured it would be easier to set ourselves right in that sort of box between, you know, the, the psilocybins and the DMTs. Was something called 4-hydroxy-DIBT which came out of the works of Alexander Shulgin. So we built around 4-hydroxy-DIBT and then built in intellectual property so that that's something that distinguishes us from the from our competitors or, or many of them anyway in that um, we designed a structure that would be uh, easy to make and solve the problems that we saw with 4-hydroxy-DIBT which is you know instability, coarse sub- solubility, Sometimes food affects when you take it. I like got colleagues that tried it and, you know, sometimes it kicks in two hours late, but it only lasts two hours. Um, you know, probably because of some meal they had and digestion flow problems, right? So metabolism gets involved. Um, so we, we decided to build a project, but we wanted to maintain that, like that really, really short, as minimally short as possible. So we designed something, a prodrug-based, that I, I'd say I was surprised at. Of all the molecules that were patented and conceived and patented by Alexander Hoffman, it was not within that back in the 50s. No, Shulgin, right? Well, no, Hoffman, Hoffman, Hoffman. Oh, okay. Hoffman, the, the bicycle day guy that uh, rode LSD, you know, did LSD on his bicycle kind of thing and uh, tripped on his way home and didn't know he was actually doing it. Um, no, Hoffman was the first one to make some of these tryptamines from psilocybin. He synthesized it and he... And he created a patent back in the '50s, that, or late 50s, early 60s, that covered off psilocybin and all these molecules, the first one to manufacture it synthetically. Alexander Shulgin came along in the 70s and sort of rediscovered it and then took it beyond. Hoffman put in our groups in a patent, but made, didn't necessarily make them all. Shulgin made 200 of them uh, and then took them, tested them on himself, wrote up the book, Tcal. As we all know, tryptamines I've known and loved, as well as Pcal for the phenethylamines. Um, but and I don't know if I'm you're like winding me off my path to a different story. But
3: no, but, we want the path. We want the path. But but,
2: but, but it, it, the the, the Shogun didn't see these, and that um, Alexander Hoffman didn't see these, allowed us to get our own intellectual property on a unique space around a prodrug. Um, that is built off of a molecule made a little bit more known by Alexander Shogun and has found some illicit use. Anyway, we took all this information together, the illicit use and the short duration of activity of 4 hydroxy DIPT, sort of that fits in that Goldilocks space, Um, a little bit of um, pro-drug chemistry that I brought in as a, you know, conceiver and an inventor, Um, put those together to create a brand new molecule that's Not only effective in, you know, generating 4-hydroxy DIPT in the body once you take it, um, but it's super simple to make because when you mix it, it precipitates out. You filter it off and clean it. Like for a chemist, it's like super simple. Um, It's straightforward. It does all the things I want it to do. So it makes the solubility go up, so that I don't have um, variability when it's administered because I don't get these food effect things. I don't get um, variations in the absorption profile. So I get nice consistent we call pharmacokinetics, um, you know, distribution in the blood and elimination in the blood. So it, it sort of solves all my problems by making this prodrug. Anyway, that's can, back can, to what Reunion does is take 4-hydroxy-DIPT from Shogun, the, the prodrug, put them together, create the intellectual property just in this space that's right next to psilocybin.
1: So I am not a chemist. I don't play one on TV. Um, and I haven't looked at a chemistry book in probably 40 years. Um, so... What is a prodrug? Because I've heard this and I understand that lots of companies that are working with different versions of whether it's psilocybin or any of the other of the Shulgin molecules, because there is a, a lack of ability to develop intellectual property around the core molecule, they go to what is a known as a prodrug. What is a prodrug? I don't get what it is. Uh,
2: there aren't too many prodrugs out there, but a prodrug is – a drug form that you would take that produces uh, that is not in itself an active drug, but when you put it in the body, it gets metabolized, degraded, enzymatically transformed into an active species that then is the pharmacological agent. So, aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid, gets cleaved to salicylic acid, uh, and and it becomes active. Um, certain testosterone products are esters of ethyl or certain hormones for contraception are esters and as the form they are they are not active they get cleaved they get turned into active species um there's there's lots of prodrugs uh, throughout pharmacy it's not just in the space of, of psychedelics
1: and using this structure where you are Slightly tweaking um, an active compound and, and making it inactive so that it then becomes active when it is metabolized in the body is a traditional way of converting or, or developing intellectual property around something that is challenging to create IP around. Is that right?
2: Sometimes. Um, it really depends. Um, it, it depends on the molecule that you, you can't put a prodrug on DMT. So, for example. The molecule has to have a structure that lends itself to adding on this chemical bit that you're going to put on the handle or the prodrug moiety that you're going to attach to it chemically. Um, And you have to have something in the body that will cleave it back. So you need to make a bond that is strong enough to be stable to chemically synthesize it and get all the properties you want when it's outside the body, but then cleaves off in a manner you want inside the body. So sometimes you want it to cleave off fast because, and that's the case of us, because we want shorter trips and we want to make sure that the trip itself coincides with the molecule and in its native form without anything on it. Um, But sometimes I'm going to say, sometimes you can make that a bond that's fairly difficult to metabolize. And that way you can spread the spread the exposure out over many hours and get a long exposure with the drug not what we're looking for so it really depends on what you want to do and it depends on the characteristics of the molecule what's hanging off is there a, a like a ball and hitch on the back of the car is there a ball on the back of the car that i can hitch my pro drug to dmt doesn't have one Psilocybin. 4-hydroxy-DIBT, it's the 4-hydroxy part that's on both of those of psilocybin and, psilocyne and uh, 4-hydroxy-DIBT and psilocin that allows you to add that trailer onto the back. Does that make sense? Then all you want it to do is fall off while you're going down the road, right? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> uh,
3: I kind of also want to get into um, knowing all of this now. What indications are, are you looking for? So how are you looking for this to affect um, real live people outside of the lab?
2: Yeah, we're, we're talking now about its, its potential marketability. Uh, so when we are looking at placing the molecule to treat postpartum depression, now this is a bit of a deviation from what everybody else is doing right now. Uh, You know, treatment resistant depression uh, as their primary indication is the biggest one. And why? Uh, Because, you know, the dollar signs on that are huge. Uh, The number of patients that could potentially be treated is huge. The need is huge, right? So whether it's a, a pure BD play or whether it's a accessibility and patient need, you know, kind of thing, it's a big market, right? But it's also crowded. It's also what I call it. So you have to step through SSRIs. It becomes, if you wanna do it as a, as a, as a treatment-resistant depression, you're gonna to have to deal with patients who have gone through multiple treatments who are often refractory to treatment. It's like, it, it's been ingrained. The depression has been so ingrained over years because they haven't found a solution that you're gonna to have to try to get them unstuck from something that's really, really hard stuck. We felt that there are good, there's a good reason to try a different approach to depression, Um, and postpartum depression is a major need. There's only one drug out there that's marketed for the indication, and it is really not the greatest of medications, Um, but it's good that it's there, mothers need help. but also, the, it's a it's a smaller population. There's some corporate reasons. It's a smaller population. Clinical trials are shorter, easier to do, smaller, um, because it's a non-chronic indication. Yeah, as I said, it it can be a shorter trial. So it becomes a more I'm going to say cost-efficient pathway to proof a concept in depression without treat without having to treat a treatment refractory patient. This is often a first depression for. A a woman, not always, but it's not necessarily there's a treatment-resistant refractory uh, depression behind it. Uh, It's often a a mild depression or not that the PPD is mild, but if there was a prior depression, it's often mild. And then it manifests itself at postpartum and then you can treat it. So it becomes a pathway for us eventually to step toward treatment-resistant depression, but in a more cost-efficient and time-efficient manner. Um, but still be in a market where there's a ton of need. And I think that a product can really have some really significant benefits. The benefits being things like it's out of, if it's a really fast trip, it's out of the body fast. Mothers can maybe get back to breastfeeding very early. I think that's our biggest, our biggest hope for a win. Um, uh, Compared to the current marketed product, which is a 60 hour infusion. And you have to usually wait another 60 hour infusion. Uh, You have to wait.
3: (laughs) Every new mother has time for that.
2: no. No, and, and and nor do they want to be separated from their babies, right. nor, did, nor do they want other people to know that they're separated. There's there's definitely stigma um, associated with mental health, but start thinking about now you don't even want your baby, you're going off for three days, you don't want your baby kind of feeling that goes through their mind. It's, it's not easy for them to do that separation. And so there's, and there's lots also- of good reasons for this molecule.
1: This opens up a, a whole wide range of questions. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, 4-hydroxy does have a mystical component to it, but there are a lot of companies out there that are, you know, looking at creating um, drugs that have a psychoplastogenetic effect on the brain um, that does not have a mystical component. Where do, Where does Reunion and where do you fall on thinking, like— do we need a mystical or can we just, you know, repave the brain and allow it to carve new pathways?
2: It's, it's, uh, it's a question that's heatedly debated. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, I would say that because patients can be treated with SSRIs, you don't need a psychedelic experience. And and they this follows from a fairly serotonergic mechanism. I believe the psychedelic experience forces patients and therapists in the same room at the same time and accelerate sort of this introspective component and probably also liberates the tongue a bit. I think if you start talking while under the influence, you say things and I think actually expressing deep-seated trauma can sometimes be the first step to solving the trauma. So as an accelerant, The psychedelic experience, I think, is really important. But I think the underlying pharmacology is not too different. SSRIs produce um, neuroplasticity. You take a pill, you go right back to work. It's like, all I want is a pill and I'm done. And I think that not taking time for oneself and trying to fix the root of the problem is the hard part. And the accelerant is the psychedelic experience. Now it accelerates the biology to neuroplasticity. It accelerates the whole solution, but it also accelerates the the talk therapy component of it, which I think is is also consequential. Do I think that? So so in in our choice, let's just I'll go back to reunion. In our choice, we consciously wanted a psychedelic that what a product that was psychedelic. We wanted to be close to psilocybin for the first product out the gate. We wanted it as a sort of low risk approach, low hanging fruit, stay as close to what's proven to work, which is psilocybin, right? Stay close to that. But in the background, we are doing research on non-psychedelic, you know, serotonergic psychoplastogens, if you want. Um, We're working on psychoplastogens that don't trigger the serotonin 2B, which has some cardiovascular implications, which we may not talk about today. But um, you know, that that could be important down the line to differentiate products uh, that, to make a product more marketable in the future and maybe even make it safer to use, um, especially if it's non-psychoactive. Then maybe you could be thinking about taking it home, using it chronically, no cardiovascular liability. It gets closer to the SSRI take-home pill, which takes away the psychoactivity where we started this whole conversation. So you hear my, my, my feeling is this, that the, the, the trip actually is important um, in accelerating, but it's not the only thing I think it's, there's a, there's, there is personal work to do. The pill can do some, it can start the biology, but then it can't do everything. If you don't, you don't have some of these other components one way or the other.
3: I think, yeah, I think that's a huge misconception that, um, you know, people are just, you know, especially upon FDA approval, spray people with these, (laughs) with these drugs and just send them off. Um, not realizing really how important that therapy is. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, things like SSRIs, um, Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac, all of those, um, those class of drugs. Um, do you think that, that big pharma has stayed away from developing new drugs, um, because quite frankly, they're making a ton of money, and they don't want to—they don't want to create something that may be um, used much less. So, not a daily dose of your SSRI. Um, you know, if you can—if you can create, you know, uh, a system where you know one to two to three to five to ten treatments, um, and and you're you're treated, you're cured, or you're you know at a place where you can like function in society. Do you think there's a that, that that this is the reason why we're so stuck with these this class of drugs?
2: If, if the point is 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 why isn't big pharma jumping into the psychedelic race? <laughs> if that if that's sort of part of the question, yeah. Um, let me let me get there. I I do think that uh, big pharma has um, they do have the products out there. There's a lot of generics. It's very competitive. So it's it's a it's a crowded space they probably have, um, work to do in other domains, uh, where they might have less subjective measures for gaining approval. So like, you know, like insulin and weight loss, where you can actually measure something and rather than asking somebody, you know, their opinion. Um, and I think there's a lot of, um, I don't think there's a good understanding about how these drugs are going to be delivered and how they're going to be able to gain value in the system. But I do think that if, um, if these markets, if these products are successful, if MDMA comes out and is successful uh, from MAPS, Big Pharma is going to jump in. They're not going to want to lose that the benefits uh the profits that could be gained from it or see their profits disappear from, you know, poor medications that are out there when they can grab up something that's interesting. So I, I do think they will get there. And I can tell you from conversations that we've had as reunion with um uh, strategic, potential strategic partners like yeah, big pharma or smaller pharma, but bigger pharma. Um, they're, they're keeping a very close eye on us and interested in seeing the results and staying close, which means I think they're concerned. That they they have to find the right time when they get in, but it's not their traditional one pill, one day model. And so it's going to take a little bit, it's a little harder for them to, to understand. Not completely dissociated, some of them do things like, you know, a single-dose oncology drug. And so they know what, you know, what, um, you know, survival stats look like. You know, do you apply it once and how long and when are you going to get the next dose? I don't know. They know those kinds of things. They'll get there. Um, I just think it's, it's, you are right. It's somewhere between them having existing products and not want to cannibalize their own profits and waiting to jump in when they're pretty sure that this is actually going to make it through the regulatory agencies and on the shelf and actually be administered, you know, with all the infrastructure that goes along with it, which creates just uncertainty for them.
1: You know, you talk about big pharma and we all know the, the history of the, the costs associated with an FDA trial. Right? It can cost as much as a billion dollars to take a drug from animal testing to phase one, phase two, phase three, and commercialization. You mentioned the costs associated or, you know, like the one pill for an oncology drug, which a you know, pharmaceutical company is going to charge $250,000 for. I'm going to take this question in a slightly different angle for you, right? Which is when it comes to psychedelics and mental health drugs. So you, you mentioned Albert Hoffman. You mentioned Alexander Shulgin, you know, who are the the fathers of the psychedelic chemistry movement. They all tried their drugs. Hoffman unintentionally tried LSD and took his bike ride, um, you know, on April 19th, my birthday, um, you know, yes, it's very fitting. I always used to be pissed that my birthday was a day before 420. And then when I realized that 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 my birthday was Bicycle Day, I was just so tickled. But, you know, Shulgin would make these drugs and then he would try them with his wife and then he would have like a dinner party and give them to his guests. What is it about psychedelics, unlike oncology drugs or other drugs, you know, that – the chemist, there is a willingness amongst the chemist to try this even before, you know, going through the 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 safety protocols. Like, and and I'm going to ask you, have you tried your drug? You know, and what was that experience like? Well, um, I, I, I,
2: it is it is a personal thing to try your drugs. Like, are you? It takes a certain person to want to do that. I can tell you, even at MIT, uh, when I was doing my PhD thesis, um, we did do giant rabbit experiments. At least that's what we called them. Um, we were doing radio pharmaceuticals, and uh, somebody would get on the table, and it would get done. That might not should be said here, but um, <laughs> it it it, had, it has happened uh, in the past, and so I. I it, it does take a certain person that's willing. And, and from a pharmaceutical perspective, just for everybody's, you know, knowledge, we're talking like, like femtograms, like there's nothing. And so there's there's no, no safety issues. And that's where a lot of it comes down is to a judgment of the safety. Um, you know, somebody might try aspirin or might try something else. And, you know, back in the 60s, they tried, I think they tried, um, you know, orthurin for contraception. There was all kinds of stuff that was done, right? Because there's a lot of hormones in there so um the, the, the thing is is uh yeah it's, it's about safety and I think in general um people accept that these drug prog- compounds are safe it's not necessarily true the the more natural ones are definitely you know they've got this long history behind them uh, whether it be DMT or psilocybin even LSD in, in terms of its uh, even though it may be synthetic it's it's um, widespread use Um more, more recently, not necessarily way back into the the ancient ages, although ergot was by the Egyptians, I believe the Egyptians had ergot. Um, there, it's it's just the general safety, and and so yeah, um, yeah, I have tried it because I do believe in the safety, and I think at, reassured by things that were said by Alexander Hoffman. Um, I'm not, you know, your general psychonaut, not even your cannabis not. Um, uh, I'm, I've been a pretty straight laced chemist, uh, for my 30 years as a chemist. And other than not me being the giant rabbit, somebody else, uh, in, in grad school, um, uh, I have, I have tried it. Um, and in, in, in part it was, I guess maybe to just try and tell myself that this was the right compound to take into the clinic as we were really in the early stages of the company you know, does this really make sense? And if it's really safe and everybody else is trying it, it used to be illicit. There's probably no risk in taking a small dose and just try to to understand what the whole hoopla is all about, right? Um, uh, And so, yeah, I did did a little self-administration experiment. (laughs) Yeah. What's the hoopla all about? What is the hoopla? Well, for me, unfortunately, I don't think, I did not see the uh, geometrical colors in the sky or God or no hands coming down. Um, but I did, I did, um, it it sort of was a little bit on me. It was a little bit more of a pick me up than a, than a sedative. If I had to put it in those, uh, broad contexts, uh, it didn't make me sleepy or anything like that. I wasn't agitated, but just, uh, awake, uh, and feeling okay, good. Um, everything became very bright and sunny and, uh, sparkly, but, um, it also caused me a little bit of GI issue and I couldn't lay down and actually lean into the experience. Um, and, uh, and so I just essentially walked around my garden and, uh, enjoyed, uh, the animal life in my garden and the greenness and the sparkly dew of rain on, on the leaves. And eventually I, I found myself in the park. Uh, I wandered all the way to the park with uh, some flowers and a water jug under my arm and a small shovel When I was planting flowers in the public garden and started talking to people and that I didn't know. Um, and uh, eventually found my way home about, you know, an hour later. So, you know, I, I, not that I didn't know what I was doing. Definitely I knew what I was doing, totally in control. Um, but yeah. Uh, it did open up, it, it did open up, uh, I don't know, a desire just to sort of be close to nature and be doing something. Um, it also pushed some emotions. Uh, I, I started thinking dirt and then worms and then dead people and then thinking about my father, whose birthday is coming up next week. He'll be 80. And I was thinking, oh, my God, he's going to be underground. And my brain sort of went sideways on that. And maybe I've got a problem that I need to resolve in that, too. Um but you know, it, it it definitely sort of shook me up. I did it you know, twice.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, and you're um you're a man. So, uh, the fact that this is <laughs> sorry, the fact that, <laughs> and I'm sure it helped with your postpartum. But the fact that you know that the there's um use for this beyond postpartum. Um, but why did you guys, uh, you know, we kind of touched on this a little but I want to drill down as to why you guys, you know, specifically selected that indication. This field is so crowded, um, weirdly crowded. Um, and you know, it, it is it, why PPD? I mean, is yeah. that, well, yeah,
2: it's a good question and I've had it multiple times and there are people that don't like us choosing PPD. And then there are people that think it's just like super brilliant kind of uh, concept. Um, one, you talked about super crowded. This is, that is not a super crowded field, right? Um, yeah. And so <laughs> sure. when we get out there to do clinical trials, we're not going to be competing with Compass to do treatment resistant patients and they've already got clinical sites in all the major you know cities and there's no way for us to get a decent patient because the clinical CROs have just sucked them all up, right? So that it, that competition is one aspect but I gave all the other ones, you know, the the true need the true need for something that's in and out of the body quickly, um, the need for the company to prove itself quickly and cast cash efficiently in a study that can be smaller, faster to run and get us the proof of concept going forward. Um, there, are probably, there are probably some others, but I think that's that's a, a good basis that convinced business good business development people. We had two external business development groups, one in the U.S., one in Canada, look at it, and they both came back and went, holy shit, this is a really good idea. Financially, everything else, it makes sense. Um, Logically, it makes sense. Pharmacologically, it makes sense. It is depression. It is non-refractory. All of the, it ticks a whole bunch of boxes uh, in addition to um, they're having a, a real need in the patient population. And then I'll say, I came from my past job where I was doing nasal testosterone. And what was it for in addition to men who had low testosterone? was also for the administration of testosterone for women for female sexual dysfunction. And so I worked in that space for almost six years, uh, finished up a phase two trial, started programming a phase three trial, no tons of KOLs um, in the space. And I approached them with the idea early on in the development of the choice and selection of the molecules, but also, as I said, from the company, we had to build out where we're going to go with this. Thinking about that all at the very onset to convince the board and everybody else to give me money to do this work. And I pulled in my KOLs, a couple of my KOLs in female sexual dysfunction, who also do reproductive health for women in postpartum depression. And they were like, wow, this is the greatest idea. This could work, it would help. People are already starting to think about ketamine for postpartum depression. So why not the psychedelics? That's sort of the pathway the TRD went down. So it all of a sudden, it sort of crystallized as something that met a lot of, checked off a lot of box, met a lot of our criteria for a corporate decision to take that pathway. Again, it is not the only indication we're going to do because we have an intellectual property allows us to do as much as we want with this molecule. We're not going to be siloed into one particular indication. Um, And I fully expect us to do TRD and other things. We're thinking about end-of-life distress. We're thinking about Um, You know, anxiety in general. Uh, So I think that those are the kind of add ons that we can do as we get that first proof of concept that'll allow us to get to the next step. Each time in this, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is to get to a milestone, be able to pay for it, be able to survive long enough to finance for the next one. If you're doing seven projects and seven indications all at the same time with the same money, you may never get to an endpoint that's financeable on any one of them. You may run out of cash. So we really, really, at the very onset, at the beginning of this company was focus, 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 um, get to that proof of concept, then worry about building a pipeline.
1: So what is the data saying? Like, where are you in the, 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 the trial tango? And what is the data telling you?
2: pretty much what we thought it would tell us when we designed the molecule, lucky for us. Um, it is, looks like psilocybin, uh, pharmacodynamics, uh, the mystical experience, the hallucinogenicity, all that other stuff looks like psilocybin. I'm gonna say at the dose of COMP360, not necessarily at the hero doses that some you know, recreational may use it, but definitely producing a nice psychedelic experience. Um, and at that dose, a duration that's a little over three hours in duration, not much more, so about half the time of psilocybin. Um, I can say we're even reassured by the, I'm going to say the safety profile. It's very safe, but the safety profile looks like like psilocybin, which again sort of says we're hitting the same pharmacological set of receptors. It's behaving like psilocybin. So we've essentially, you know, done what we said we were going to do, we pretty much did it on time. The product does what we said we're going to do, and we're just about to step into PPD, which is what we've said all along was going to be our first indication. So, in essence, I would hope that builds confidence with our investors and our investor base that we say we do, we're going to do what we say we're going to do. Not like some switch programs in the middle. We have had a very steady progression, and the reason is it's the choice of the molecule for hydroxy DIPT, you know, really had. All the right properties for what we wanted, we just had to build in the intellectual property that made rational sense and actually creates a a, a fundamental change in the molecule that allows it to be a better drug product, which we've done, um, and then go out and execute um, in a cash efficient manner, move the project forward, you know, as far as we can, and then show that proof to get our financing.
1: So we're going to be, so full disclosure, KCSA is the public relations partner for Reunion. And, you know, we are recording this on May 5th. Sometime at the end of May, beginning of June, we're going to be announcing phase one um, uh, endpoint and data. Um, and hopefully you guys will very rapidly move into phase two. Can you talk about what the structure of a phase two trial would look like for you guys?
2: Um. I, I can, in very general sense, I think it's it's in our corporate deck that you can find on our website reunionneuro.com uh, on the investors page. You know, there's a there's a downloadable deck. Um, uh, currently, it looks like it's going to be uh, it is going to be in moderate to severe postpartum depression women. Uh, the study for it, it will be a full I'm going to say a full fledged phase two. We're not doing a you know a two way no placebo open label control. No, we're doing a placebo controlled powered study that is going to give us the data at the end of the phase two that will allow us to step into phase three. And it is, uh, again, moderate to severe postpartum depression women, um, uh, uh, about 50 subjects, uh, 50 to 60 subjects, um, powering still being worked on, but 50 to 60 subjects. Um, the study itself is um, would have endpoints at one week um, and sec- keep secondary endpoints at three days to demonstrate it's a fast rapid onset antidepressant, but also endpoints all the way out to 28 days, at least in the in the phase two, to demonstrate at least that we've knocked the symptoms down and maintained the symptoms down for a certain amount of time. Typically, if you can keep them down that long, they should extend out to 42 days, which would probably be the endpoint in phase three. Um, what else do I need to know? what else do you need to know? That's, it's a fairly small, fairly routine. And the study, if we can get it started, the idea is to have the IND filed this summer, open the study before the end of the year, dose our first patient before the end of the year, and complete all of our dosing and close out the study before the end of next year. So it'd be a study that's probably going to be about nine months to a year long, you know, once we get that first patient in all the way to the end, at the end of next year. Um, So probably from today, about 18 months to hit that miles, that next milestone on proof group of concept.
3: Can you talk about recruitment? Um, you know, I feel like there are so many, um, I mean it's starting to be taught postpartum depression is starting to be talked about a lot more, um, which is great. I mean, there's been celebrities coming forward, um, and, and people, you know, really working hard to, to destigmatize it. Um, but you know, in terms of, of, of truly working with, with women and mothers, um, how are you messaging this to them? Um, you know, it, it, in terms of, you know, any stigma that might be attached not only to postpartum depression, but also to, you know, quote unquote, psychedelics. How, how, does that, how is that working?
2: we're not we're not messaging yet we can't do that until we actually get the ind open and start to study so we haven't we haven't messaged too much um and talked about our advertising or or recruitment strategy but one of the things that keeps coming up from um uh, internally from our med affairs team is is that um a lot of women because there's so few options out there there are a lot of women that are self-medicating with illicit substances uh, whether it be psilocybin or something else, um, and definitely not the kind of thing that we think we would want to promote, but it means that there's a need out there, and I don't think if they're taking illicit substances, if there's a lot of use of illicit substance out there, there's going to be a big stigma associated with this. And I think in general, if you think about the progression, the timing of where we are, being a first follower might make it a little bit easier for us have mdma get approved this fall in october i think it's going to destigmatize a lot of things right um and with compass already getting a fairly positive nod from the fda about their phase three program again is a is a nice um a nice to have to to help us in that in that path so I, i really don't think that uh in the long run it's going to be difficult to recruit any more than it would be with any other medication because there's a, uh, there's a true need, it, you know, it, it, if there's, there's other alternatives, like with TRD, maybe there's multiple alternatives, you know, pe- people might not come into a study, but here I think it's going to be, it's going to be unique um, and, and needed. So no, I, I think it's going to be fine. Our KOLs seem to feel the same way that this is not going to be a big problem. Studies that are going on now, some initial studies that are going on now with ketamine are working quite fine. Um, I think part of, I mean, what I've tried to do a lot with this, and and this this might go back to our early question here, uh, Lewis, It's like, do you really want to talk about you know trying psychedelics? You know, I really have wanted um, to stay as much away from treating these pharmaceuticals as psychedelics, so they can be treated as medicines, and sort of destigmatize it in that frame, rather than always trying to put the label of psychedelic on it. Um, that has, you know, a long history that's negative in the medical field, right? I want it to be thought of as a pharmaceutical solution to a, you know, a condition and a problem. Um, and then if mothers think about it that way, then it's nothing. And it's been approved that way by the FDA, then it's not your traditional mushroom psychedelic. It is a medicated, regulated, medicated drug that is that is for that specific condition and proven to be so.
1: Nathan, I have one last question because you've been really generous with your time. Is there something that you've experienced working in um, at reunion or with mental health drugs that has just shocked you? Like, what is the thing that just you went, I never expected that? What is that?
2: Well, I, when somebody called me uh, and, and it was an investor, um, investment banker that called me and said, we want you to talk to these guys because they have an idea that's before coming into the company. The whole idea of psychedelics being used, I, I'd never heard of this before. Um, and um, for depression, all that I, I was not in the loop on MDMA. I was not in the loop on the early compass work. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, this is just another canvas play. It's like, you know, and and then I sat back and uh, somebody said, "Read the book by Michael Pollan." I did. I got about halfway through it, and then I was already reading neuroscience papers, uh, whether it be Carhart-Harris, uh, Tillman, Olson, Nutt, you know, Nichols, uh, and uh, I was sitting here and Roth. Don't forget Brian Roth. Um, I was sitting here going, "Holy crap!" To have such a disruptive change to the trajectory of depression is unbelievable. But the neuroscience is being built, and this this is part of why I got into is that the science was being built now again, and it's better. Um, We've got the tools, the fMRIs, the EEGs, the, you know, everything is, and people are being much more scientific about it than the, you know, Timothy Leary days. It is, it is built up to the point that I truly believed this was real. Like a single dose can change things. And that was just enormous for me. I did not think you could actually change, you know, a mindset that much with a single dose. I don't think four hydroxy did it to me, but I'm not a depressed patient. So um so so but you know, I I, I think that's the biggest, you know, eye opening and why I came here. Since then, I don't think anything surprises me in the, in this realm, you know, somebody opens up a new indication space and it works or it doesn't work. Like, uh, it it, it, it seems now to have, I think, settled down, the science for me has settled down to where I think I know what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. I don't get as surprised anymore.
1: That is a great way to end. Thank you so much, Nathan. This has been a f- absolutely fascinating um, and fantastic conversation. Um, you are actually welcome back. Um, right before we start phase two, why don't we have you on and you can give us more insights into, you know, the data that we're going to be announcing on phase one, but, but more importantly, you know, how the phase two trial is shaping up. Maybe we can point people to where they can register because when we start recruitment, it would be great, um, to allow the listeners of the Green Rush to know where on clinicaltrials.gov to go to enroll in a, a phase two trial. Um, and just thank you, man. This was really, this is awesome. Okay. Well, I
2: appreciate I appreciate it. It was fun.
1: Thank you.
3: Thank you, Nathan. Have a good one. Our thanks to Nathan Bryson, Chief Scientific Officer at Reunion Neuroscience. Check them out at reunionneuro.com. That's R-E-U-N-I-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And as always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, please find us on Twitter. At the, the underscore green rush or on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback and guest ideas. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the green rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.